You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Part 1, Africa. Chapter 1, Divided and United, Investing in Change. South Africa. Innocence Lost. I moved with my family from Bulawayo to Cape Town, South Africa, in 1978 to escape the escalating Rhodesian bush war. My growing love affair with nature continued to blossom when I joined the scouting movement, first Cub Scouts and later Boy Scouts, where I eventually achieved the accolade of Springbok Scout, the highest award possible in South Africa. I have many great memories of numerous hiking and camping excursions, whether it was striding along the beach and wading over sand dunes for two days, which was the Rainer competition, or trekking through the mountain wilderness for ten days and scuba diving in deep rock pools in the Cedarberg Adventure, or hiking down a canyon river for five days and sleeping under the stars in the Fisher River Canyon. And so I ended up growing to relish spending days and nights outdoors. I think it's fair to say I lived a privileged and sheltered life in Cape Town, attending racially segregated schools without much understanding of the immoral politics of the day or the storm of popular discontent that was steadily building. My naivety was brought into sharp relief when, in my final year of school in 1987, I went on a Christian work camp to Namakwaland. This arid area, situated on the northwest coast of South Africa, is famous for its multicolored carpets of daisies that erupt in the spring. Its population is mostly rural and poor, of mixed race, classified as so-called colored in South Africa at the time, with strong ancestral links to the sand bushmen of the nearby Kalahari Desert. A few copper and diamond mines in the area provided what little employment opportunities were available. The mission was to help build a community centre, working together with local community members. Believe it or not, the fact that people from different races were mixing socially was, in 1987 South Africa, considered radical, as apartheid was still legally in force, institutionalised through dozens of racist laws like the Group Areas Act, which segregated living areas and public facilities. It soon became clear that years of separation and suspicion had taken their toll. At one point, the black volunteers, black was used in South Africa as an umbrella term for all races of non-European descent, including African, Asian and coloured, they started singing political protest songs while they were working. The white volunteers, including myself, promptly took offence, believing that politics and religion should not be mixed. This was a Christian work camp after all. This just shows how naive we were as white children growing up in South Africa. After all, not only have religion and politics always mixed throughout the history of the world, but more specifically, the church has been complicit in apartheid, for better and for worse, for decades. For one thing, the nationalist government, which came into power in 1948, used the Bible to justify its racist policies. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission later reported, and I quote, 
Some of the major Christian churches gave their blessing to the system of apartheid, and many of its early proponents prided themselves in being Christians. Indeed, the system of apartheid was regarded as stemming from the mission of the church. End quote. On the other hand, it was also church groups that were among the most vociferous anti-apartheid activists, both at home, led by the likes of Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and abroad. Ethical Investment Roots Most significant for the emerging corporate responsibility movement was a campaign by African-American minister, Reverend Leon Sullivan, to hold U.S. companies operating in South Africa accountable for their ethical practices. Sullivan had been serving on the board of General Motors since 1971 and was described by his colleagues at GM as the Lion of Zion and the conscience of the board. In addition to pushing for diversity within the company in America, since GM had significant operations in South Africa, Sullivan began campaigning to raise standards for black workers living under apartheid. This led to the establishment in 1977 of what is arguably the world's first corporate social responsibility or CSR code, the Sullivan Principles. The principles called for U.S. companies operating in South Africa to integrate corporate facilities, establish equal and fair employment practices, and increase the number of black managers. It was not uncontroversial, since the banned African National Congress, or ANC, and its rising star, Nelson Mandela, were already calling for disinvestment from South Africa. According to Reverend Jesse Jackson, and I quote, when the big idea was to boycott South Africa, Reverend Sullivan's point was that when blacks emerged, they had to have infrastructure. He argued that if you run out all the companies, when black South Africans were liberated, they would take over a shell. In the end, these were not conflicting positions. Mandela had a long appreciation for Sullivan, as did the rest of the African National Congress. End quote. Eventually, Sullivan did call for full divestment from South Africa, a position that alienated some of the 100-plus U.S. companies that had signed up to his original proposal. However, later, in 1999, he joined with United Nations Secretary-General Kofi Annan to relaunch the code as the new Global Sullivan Principles. The overarching objective of these principles, according to Sullivan, is to support economic, social and political justice by companies where they do business, including respect for human rights and equal opportunities for all peoples. By the time of his death in April 2001, more than 250 companies, including Coca-Cola, British Airways and Texaco, had endorsed Sullivan's new principles. Beyond contributing to the eventual dismantling of apartheid, the Sullivan Principles were significant for another reason. They added tremendous momentum to a movement that had barely just begun, the Ethical Investment or Socially Responsible Investment Movement, also called the SRI Movement. This was led by the US-based Pax World Fund, founded in 1971 by two men with a well-defined mission. Luther Tyson and Jack Corbett, who had worked on peace, housing and employment issues for the United Methodist Church, 
wanted to make it possible for investors to align their money with their values. At the same time, they wanted to challenge corporations to establish and live up to specific standards of social and environmental responsibility. Little could Tyson and Corbett have imagined that their fund, now called the Pax World Balanced Fund, would help give birth to the global SRI movement. Interest in the industry has expanded exponentially, with socially responsible and sustainable investment assets increasing from $609 billion in 1995 to $8.72 trillion in 2016, according to the U.S. Social Investment Forum. In Europe, the figure is over 10 trillion euros in SRI assets under management, according to Eurosif. This explosive growth in SRI funds led to the establishment of the UN Principles for Responsible Investment in 2006. The six principles reflect the view that environmental, social and corporate governance, or ESG, issues can affect the performance of investment portfolios and therefore must be given appropriate consideration by investors if they are to fulfill their fiduciary duty. The PRI provides a voluntary framework by which all investors can incorporate ESG issues into their decision-making and ownership practices and so better align their objectives with those of society at large. As of April 2011, over 850 institutions had become signatories with assets under management of approximately $25 trillion. Removing the blinkers Needless to say, when we had our little standoff about religion and politics in the Macqualand in 1987, I was ignorant of the important positive role that Sullivan, Tyson, Corbett, Tutu and many other faith leaders were playing in nudging companies towards more socially responsible practices in South Africa and around the world. However, in a strange way, religion did play a pivotal role in my subsequent career path. When I had to choose what to study at university, my two strong interests were commerce and comparative religion. I had started a few little business ventures when I was at school, selling chocolates and jewellery, and had also become fascinated by Eastern faiths by this time. When I sought spiritual guidance on my dilemma, I found a passage in the Bible which said, and I quote, Take the ark of God back into the city. There is no representative of the king. Go back to the city in peace. End quote. 2 Samuel 15 verse 25 to 27. My interpretation was that I should pursue a career in business, but try to bring spiritual values into my work. At some level, this is still what I'm trying to do, although I'm no longer viewing it in religious terms. I finally woke up to the scourge of apartheid at university. As part of my Bachelor of Business Science degree, I took a course in development economics taught by Professor Francis Wilson who ran the Southern African Labor and Development Research Unit. He had written an outstanding book called Uprooting Poverty, the South African Challenge, together with Mampele Rampele, the doctor, anti-apartheid activist and former partner of the late black consciousness activist Stephen Biko. 
Wilson's lectures, along with his book, brought me face to face with the brutal reality of South Africa's discriminatory migrant labor system and the terrible consequences of apartheid in terms of poverty and underdevelopment. Ignorance was no longer an excuse. Denial was no longer an option. Even so, I was not one of those who immediately joined protest marches, threw rocks at passing cars on the highway, or confronted the police when they rolled onto campus in their armoured trucks, all of which was happening fairly frequently by this time. But I did want to make a positive difference, and was fortunate to discover ISEC, the International Association of Economics and Commerce Students, which seemed like a place where I could bring about change through business. ISEC had many initiatives, such as the International Traineeship Exchange Program and the Community Assistance Program, all designed to promote intercultural understanding and develop leadership skills. So I ended up getting actively involved and serving first as Projects Director and then President of the Cape Town Chapter. Discovering Sustainable Development It was ISEC that introduced me to sustainable development and linked the concept to business. With the Brundtland Commission having launched their 1987 report, Our Common Future, and with all eyes firmly set on the upcoming United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, the so-called Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, ISEC began organizing seminars and conferences on business and sustainable development. I ended up attending two landmark events, the South African National Conference on Environment and Development held in Johannesburg, as well as the World Theme Conference on Business and Sustainable Development held in Tokyo in August 1990. You can read more about that story or listen in Chapter 11 on Japan. Suffice to say, the impact on a young management student like myself was profound. In preparation, we had to prepare local case studies to share with our international colleagues. I chose waste management and found myself meeting local recycling groups and attending a metropolitan recycling meeting chaired by the mayor of Cape Town, which included representatives from the plastics, paper and bottling industries. I made many interesting discoveries. For instance, I learned that South Africa had the third highest aluminium can recycling rate in the world, largely due to armies of poor people that collected and returned the cans for a small fee. I also learned that there was a glut in the city's recycling system. Not enough people were buying products with recycled content. Hence, supply constantly exceeded demand. I later wrote for the International Ecological Economics Bulletin, that, and I quote, recycling is an obvious win-win for the environment and economics, but in South Africa it takes on a different face than the conventional concerned housewife separating her garbage. Here, much of the recycling being practiced is by poor people or homeless people who collect door-to-door or clean up litter from the streets and parks in order to generate a meager income on which to survive. The tiny economic incentive provided, which probably only captures a fraction of the real environmental benefit of recycling, is sufficient to mobilize large numbers of people behind this worthy cause and provide them with a basic livelihood. Today in Southern Africa, over 2 billion steel beverage cans are consumed every year. 
They are 100% recyclable and the current recovery rate is around 70%. This impressive achievement is mostly thanks to Collector Can, an organization established in 1993. Annually, more than 20 million rand is paid to an estimated 100,000 collectors, most of whom have no other source of income. Millions of schoolchildren are also introduced to the idea of caring for the environment through Collector Can's schools competition, which attracts between 300 and 500 schools annually, earning cash prizes. They are creating a culture of recycling. Other countries have also made great strides on recycling since my fledgling interest in 1990, although there is still a long way to go. In Europe, Austria leads with approximately 60% of its waste being recycled, while the United States recycles about 30% of its waste, double the rate of a decade ago. The UK is estimated to recycle less than 20%, with Ireland, Italy, Portugal and Luxembourg being not too far behind. Greece props up the league table with only 10%. Paper recycling is a little more encouraging, with both the US and the EU recycling more than 50%. On recycling of steel cans, Japan leads with 99% of the municipalities collecting and recycling. In 1973, the Japan Steel Can Recycling Association was established to promote the recycling of steel cans, and today an impressive 90% are recycled. Starting to change course. My growing interest in sustainable development led me to focus my final year dissertation on the subject. As my honours degree was in marketing, I chose green marketing as my topic and focused on the efforts of a national retailer, Pick and Pay. As it happened, Pick and Pay, led by founder and chairman Raymond Ackerman, was one of the 50 cases included in the Business Council for Sustainable Development's book, Changing Course, which was prepared as input to the Rio Earth Summit. The company had developed a range of green products, mostly toiletries and household cleaners. They had also realized the enormous opportunity they had to educate their customers. Hence, stores were used as distribution points for environmental fact sheets on everything from the destructive impacts of dragnet fishing to the benefits of recycling. They also produced some credible glossy reports about their positive impacts on society and the environment. In terms of the way I now characterize responsible business, into five ages and stages of CSR, more about this in chapter 25, I would probably describe their approach as a typical promotional CSR approach located firmly in the age of marketing. But at the time, they were considered rightly as pioneering. To their credit, they were also one of the more vocal companies pressuring the government to change their racist policies on employment. Today, looking at the four-page sustainability section in their annual report, I'd say they're well on their way to strategic CSR in the age of management with the expected range of key performance indicators on energy, waste, employment, equity, and community investment. There are even little glimmers of transformative CSR when they recognize that, and I quote, price remains a critical factor influencing customer decisions to purchase in accordance with sustainability criteria, and we are striving to achieve price parity on sustainable and ethical lines, end quote. 
But for me back then, as a university student and new convert to the sustainability cause, I was just pleased to gain access to study their environmental practices. Pick and Pay was also a catalyst in another way. Their chairman, Raymond Ackerman, personally endorsed and part-sponsored my trip to Japan for the ISEC Conference on Business and Sustainable Development. After finishing my business science degree in marketing, the only thing I was clear about was that I did not want a career in marketing. My real passion, perhaps it was even an obsession, was to find a way to pursue my ideas of bringing values into business. Although I had been exposed to sustainable business at the ISEC conference in Japan and had explored it a bit more in my dissertation, I somehow felt the agenda was too narrow. My interests went deeper, even embracing questions of spirituality. But how was I to reconcile these ideals with a career in business, I wondered. Luckily, I did not need to figure that out immediately. Canada was beckoning.